Welcome, everybody, to the Illusion of Consensus podcast. I am Professor Jay Bhattacharya, and today I'm delighted to have here with me my friend Matthias Desmond. Uh, Matthias, welcome to the show. I'm, it's been difficult to get us together, but I'm so glad you, uh, we finally managed to do it. Uh, likewise, Jay. I'm happy to be here, and thank you for having me on. Uh, so Matthias uh, is is most famous uh, for a book that he wrote um, during the pandemic called The Psychology of Totalitarianism. Um, we're going to talk ma- mostly about the themes that he t- talked about in that book. But uh, you know, you should know, uh, everyone should know that Matthias is a professor at the University of Ghent in Belgium and in, in, in uh, a psychology, in clinical psychology, a, a practicing psychotherapist. But also, Matthias, you have a you have a background in statistics. Yes, yes. I also have a master degree in statistics, and uh, let's say the first eight years of my academic uh, training, of my academic of my work as a researcher, I uh, I was uh, working uh, most of the time as a statistician, uh, doing research into uh, problems with academic research. Actually, so uh, when when I made my PhD, I started. Uh, in 2003, I think, and uh, two years later, uh, the replication crisis started, uh, a crisis which showed that, as John uh, Ioannidis uh, describes in his wonderful paper, why most published research findings are false, uh, a crisis that showed that um, huge percentages of the published academic research actually Leads to wrong conclusions or draws. Wrong yeah, I, it's interesting because uh, uh, John John's my colleague here at Stanford, and of course that's uh, it, it's it's he's most maybe he's most maybe he's famous for many many things. But that launching of the replication crisis was uh, may, maybe the most impactful thing that he he ever did. Uh, what it did in in many ways is it it punctured the illusion that there was. You know that that a lot of a lot of like academic work, a lot of scientific work, really was aiming at getting at the truth. In fact, what it mainly seemed to be is uh, is is just a way to climb uh, the greasy pole of academic politics because you have to publish or or perish. And so, a lot of the work that was published in psychology, uh, in, in empirical economics, and in a whole bunch of fields um, turned out not to be replicable. Uh-huh. Up to eighty five percent in the medical world. Um, in medicine too one of john's papers and that's extremely interesting i think because but you see that like scientific discourse initially let's say back in the beginning of the 17th century i believe was a a fine example of truth speech it was a new discourse that um uh, uh, emerged and that that offered an alternative for uh, the very dogmatic religious discourse at the moment in Europe, uh, but slowly, as scientific discourse became the dominant discourse in society, it lost its qualities of truthfulness and truth speech, and in the end, uh, it just became um, uh, a manipulative uh, 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 discourse in many respects. I think, uh, and that's a problem we are facing now and that's something that is very typical for every discourse that in the beginning was a sincere discourse of a minority and that became the dominant discourse while becoming dominant while becoming mainstream a discourse loses its qualities of truthfulness it stops being a kind of truth speech from a psychological point of view i think uh, 
that this is a very interesting phenomenon. I mean, the idea is that uh, science, when it is an outside phenomenon, critiquing, trying, seeking the truth, even if it is uncomfortable to to people in power, uh, is a very powerful thing. It's a, it's it's a, it's a, in fact, uh, I think in the in in your book you called it soul expanding, right? Uh, it's a it's a way to understand how the physical world works. A, a p powerful set of tools, a discipline for ourselves, uh, and when we apply it without uh, without any sense of wanting a, an answer just, just other than the truth it's it's incredible but when married to power it becomes an ideology absolutely and um exactly. and so and the way that you you uh wrote about this i mean you, you write about it as as a uh as this like uh as this tool used by the powerful to to control to to essentially uh, that uh, that you, you it's cre it's created a situation where the um where where people become disconnected from this uh, they they become uh, enthralled to this ideology of science yeah. you know follow the science trust the science as if it it were itself a religious system rather than uh rather than a a, a humble set of tools to, trying to say well, can, can I tell the difference between true and false. Hi everyone, a quick word from our first and exciting new sponsor, Alchemy Elements. We've been shopping around trying to find the best sponsors that align with our mission and our values and what we stand for. And we've come across Alchemy Elements, which I'm very excited to bring to you guys, which is a synergistic herbal supplement. It's a mix of several adaptogenic plant compounds. For those of you who don't know, adaptogens, you might have heard on Andrew Huberman's podcast, are uh, plant medicines that help the body adapt to stress, essentially. And so there's a number of adaptogens in here, including cordyceps mushrooms, reishi mushrooms, astrologus, shiljot, polygala, lion's mane mushrooms, and other compounds as well. And you just take a tablespoon of this, you put it in your morning coffee or your smoothie or protein shake, and you're good to go. Um, I've been doing this for about a week, and as it suggests, um, some of the short-term effects of increased focus, increased concentration, more energy. I've already been feeling some of that. Uh, look forward to taking it more in the long term and reporting back as we do more of these ads. Uh, we've been very careful and selective in what to what what to sponsor on our program, and this is something that I can totally get behind. And as long as you keep hearing ads about this particular product, Alchemy Elements. You can be assured that this is something that I stand behind and can personally vouch for and recommend individuals try. Um, so for a limited time right now, um, people who are watching or listening to this podcast, they can get a 10% discount on their first order, or they can get a 30% discount for all subscription orders if you um, subscribe for a certain amount of deliveries per month. And if you um, order a subscription package, then you can get the premium gold kit as well, which includes this um, really nice gold bottle and a gold spoon to store your alchemy elements. Um, just use the code word illusion. If you're on Spotify or Apple or Substack, um, we'll drop a link below, or you can manually uh, type in alchemyelements.com and you can add um, your uh, products to the cart and you can put in the code illusion and you can get the 10% off discount for the first order or 30% off for the subscription order and you can get your gold kit. Uh, thank you so much to Alchemy Elements. Um, please check them out and uh, I hope you enjoy their products.
All right, back to the show. Exactly. That's um, uh, so typical uh, for every discourse that becomes dominant. Uh, in the beginning, uh, when it's the discourse of a minority, it cannot be used in an instrumental way. But as a discourse becomes more dominant, it's typically used to be successful, to uh, sell your products, to, to, uh, to, uh, to uh, build an, a, a career, and so on. So when a discourse becomes dominant, it's uh, uh, an excellent instrument um, to become successful in society. And uh, to become rich, to become famous, to become successful, and so on. And that's how this discourse gets perverted. And that's also what happened with science, I'm afraid, uh, throughout the last two centuries. Uh, I mean, it, it, it draws people who are less interested in using the tools for soul-expanding purposes yeah. to learn, learn how the world works, even if it contradicts the ideas of how I now think how the world works, um, versus people who want to use it as a way to gain status power right if you trust if you think of science as uh a capital t capital s science and all i have to do, know is uh what are the the, the 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 set of things i'm supposed to believe and thereby i will gain status and power well you're going to get a very different it's a very different kind of activity than experiments uh, hypotheses that that get overturned by ugly facts uh, learning uh, that what I what I and humility in the face of a tremendous uh, tr tr tremendous beauty and ignorance. Yeah, exactly. And you will at attract a completely different type of human being. Yeah, scientific discourse attracts a completely different type of human being when it's a the discourse of a minority compared to the discourse of a of a. Mainstream discourse, that's a completely different thing. Indeed, that's, that's exactly, that's the entire problem. In the beginning, science was not ideological at all. Science was made to challenge ideologies and ideas. And after a while, it became in itself uh, a dominant ideology. Um, and and that's, that's when the problems start, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's striking that you start your book this way. I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting. I was expecting a more straightforward, uh, a, a psychological analysis. But it, it, uh, but it, but you start with this corruption of science as as the heart of the problem. No. Um, uh, now, t tell me. Now, you, uh, the, 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 you, you, you move from that to this idea of 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 the alienation of people from each other. From their from the from the activities that they do that that, that and and that in fact it's just this this science's ideology that makes it possible to have this this sort of alienated life. Um, yeah, exactly. That that's a very strange uh, phenomenon as well throughout the last few centuries. Like as religious discourse was replaced by uh, by the more rationalist, mechanist uh, uh, view of man and the world, which. Many people believe is the scientific view of man in the world, which is not true. Most major scientists are not rationalists, and they are also not uh, believing that the, that the universe is a machine. Not at all, but in a strange way, we became convinced that this rationalist, mechanist ideology is the scientific view of man in the world. And as this view of man in the world became dominant throughout the last few centuries, we, we could observe a very strange phenomenon in society, and which was... Uh, uh, which 
Hegel, the famous German philosopher Hegel, coined the term atomization for. He said, our society is atomizing, meaning that the social bond between people slowly deteriorated. And more and more people throughout the last few centuries reported to feel lonely and disconnected. And just before the corona crisis, the number of lonely people really peaked. In between 40 and 60% of the people worldwide reported um, uh, not to have one meaningful relationship and only connect to other people uh, uh, in a technological way, so which was huge and, we, and very interesting. Um, I think it was a Gallup World poll, I'm not sure, but I mentioned it in my book, which showed that the number of lonely people was very highly correlated to the level of uh, industrialization and technology use. So, and that's, for me, was one of the major questions I asked myself. Why did this rationalist, mechanist fuel man in the world lead to more and more loneliness? And you can explain it in several ways. Uh, the, the most profound way is, uh, to, is situated merely at the psychological level. Like when we start to believe that um, the essence of life around us uh, can be grasped in the categories of our rational thinking, we inevitably isolate and alienate ourselves from the core of life because the core of life, the essence of life, can never be grasped in a rational way. That's what someone like the famous uh, uh, physicist Niels Bohr said. When it comes to atoms, he said, language can only be used as poetry. And uh, the entire social, uh, the entire uh, complex dynamical systems theory is showing us exactly this. Every complex dynamical system, which are most phenomena in nature, behaves literally like an irrational number in mathematics, which means that it is intrinsically unpredictable, this phenomenon. And science, on the one hand, is an impressive accumulation of rational knowledge, but equally well, it is a mental discipline which, which showed us that the essence of life can never be grasped in a rational way. I mean, that, that, that's a, such an important point. And the Enlightenment thinkers uh, knew that, understood this. Like, there, I remember uh, uh, in college, I read Blaise Pascal, Pascal's Pensée, oh. right? very, a very famous, actually, scientist of the Enlightenment era. Uh, and uh, he was writing this book to justify his religious faith, oh. uh, and, and it was it was a striking contrast. That was the, 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 the professor that assigned it was I think he he meant to, to show this contrast that there was a limit to how soul fulfilling uh, our, our development of reason can be. In fact, there's that we're more than just head. Uh, we're also heart, and our, our our being is tied up in in the in the two of them. And to say only the head matters is a mistake. It's, uh, it's a scientific mistake as uh, well as a human mistake. Uh, and you can also see it actually, you know, Einstein also said in, a, in a, the introduction of a, of a book of a Max Planck, this other famous physicist of the 20th century, he said, many people think that science is born from a supreme capacity of, for, uh, 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 for rational thinking. But he said that's not true. I believe science, science originates from a, uh, a supreme capacity 
for Einfühlung, he said, which is a German term for empathical, empathical, empathic resonating. You have to be capable of resonating with the phenomenon you're interested in in an empathic way with your heart. That's and and to in order to discover a phenomenon in this way, you have to have the courage not to know to stop thinking. A science is a scientist, a real scientist is someone who has the capacity to stop thinking and who has the courage to admit that he doesn't know. And that's in this little space of not knowing, a new knowing is born. That's what science is. Science is a paradox. There's a paradox at the center of it. It's It's beautiful. That's beautiful, Matthias. Beautiful. Um, So uh, now the mechanistic worldview, you mentioned this, as the source of atomization. So like, I just want to explore that just a little bit because it's, I think, a central thesis of your book. Um, the, the, the mechanistic worldview, the idea is that, uh, that, the, that the physical realities, atoms, uh, you know, physical forces, gravity, whatever they are, quantum mechanics, whatever they are, those physical forces are all there are. And that, and that, that, that in a sense, like... Uh, um, we come together. We're like a collection of atoms that uh, that, that accidentally come together via some some uh, long mechanistic process. Um, will go out of existence, and uh, in a in a way, the idea. I think the thesis. Maybe please correct me if I'm getting it wrong. But like the thesis of, the, of that you put forward in the book is that this is a this is alienating because there's no inherent meaning in just a random collection of atoms. Yeah. That's one problem, yes, indeed. If, if you consider the universe to be a, like a dead a material machine, then this machine um, uh, goes around without meaning. It has no purpose or meaning. So that's one, one level at which you can see that this mechanist fuel man in the world leads to a loss of purpose and meaning in life. But, but there is a much more profound process, I think, like this mechanist thinking, this rationalist thinking, uh, even purely at the psychological level, leads already to loneliness. Because if you're, for instance, you can explain that in many ways, but if you're confronted with someone who is uh, fundamentally convinced that he understands you in a rational way, that he knows who you are, that he knows you perfectly, you will feel no connection. Just because in this case, you feel completely, uh, it's as if you don't exist for that person because he believes that he completely understands you in a rational way already. So that's a very alienating experience. But then beyond that, beyond the psychological level, you can see that uh, this rationalist view on man in the world led to the industrialization of the world, to the mechanization of the world, to the use of more and more technology. And that in itself disconnected people from each other. And you can, I, I explain in my book, like for instance, even the invention of a simple mechanic device such as a watch uh, disconnected us from the cycles, from the the, the the natural cycles of nature, of the sun, of the moon, and so on. And and that at uh, at uh, at a different level, you could see that the invention of the television and the radio uh, replaced uh, a lot of real social interactions between people. And then once the internet was used, like if you get on a train now, you see how people uh, barely speak to each other, but they are all focused on the screen of their of their of their mobile phone. And in this way. Um, uh, the real communications are constantly replaced by technological communication. And technology does connect us to each other, but only at the level of the exchange of information. But it takes away, it destroys the physical resonance between people. 
If people meet in person in the real world while they are talking, their bodies, for instance, and their soul, actually, constantly resonates with each other. We constantly imitate each other's uh, the tensions in, in, the, in, the, in the muscles on, on, uh, on, on the other's face, uh, the bodily postures, and so on. We constantly, without knowing it, imitate each, imitate each other, and that's what we, why we constantly feel we empathically resonate with the other. We feel a little bit what the other feels. And this process of empathic resonance is like reduced by, I guess, 90% or something uh, uh, when, when uh, communicating in a technological way. And that's exactly why people, for instance, during the first lockdown, many people reported that when you have to teach and um, uh, uh, for eight hours straight online, then in a strange way, you feel exhausted. And in, 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 in a very strange way, which is hard to pinpoint. But the, the reason is that while you're talking in a, in a digital way, your body constantly tries to connect to the body of the other, but it fails to do so. Or maybe it can connect only for 10%. And that's why it tries. you try time and time again to feel this symbiotic resonance with the other. And your body get you you get exhausted uh, because you constantly fail to do so. Uh, I think it was there was a certain guy on Twitter who said um, what makes digital communication so exhausting is the fact that we are constantly in the presence of the absence of the other when you when we talk in a digital. Way. I mean, you you don't know you you don't know how people are actually reacting to you, right? You uh, like it's a difference between lecturing to a, a, a full audience of students. And I can see if my jokes work or don't work. I can see if my if there's understanding, uh, and and I can get feedback even if they're not saying something. I can see physically: uh, are they falling asleep? Are they are they you know are they are they are they are they are they, are they you know are they are they present? Um, whereas in online settings, it's a very disconnected way to connect. Yeah. It feels anonymous almost, even if they're even if, I, if we can see each other. I mean, I would love to have done this in person, but unfortunately, you're, you're in Belgium and I'm in California. Um, but 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 because we but it's interesting. But because we once physically met uh, at a in, a in a pub in Belgium, uh, it's much easier to connect even now. I think. Of course. Yes. Um, and I think uh, I think that for the for the and you 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 bring up uh, the 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 consequences for the COVID pandemic. I think it's it's very very important because I think it fed the psychology of what what happened. This this uh, this devotion to the ideology of science. This this reliance on uh, digital connections. You know, Zoom essentially. Uh, allowed us to disconnect from each other thinking that we were going to do this in this in a safe way in a way that's going to uh, allow us to like not not get sick and still remain human but in fact that disconnection undermined our humanity you know in 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 many ways it, it allowed yes. us to think of each other as biohazards rather than as fellow human beings yeah it leads to uh it leads to mass formation and that's the the clue of the book, I think, that 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 uh, the the rationalist view on men and the world in many ways uh, led to loneliness. And once people feel lonely, uh, they spontaneously will feel that their life is without uh, purpose or meaning. Because because as a human being, we spontaneously have the feeling that our life makes sense, that our life has purpose and meaning when we see that we have an effect on the other. And when we feel lonely, we don't have these spontaneous experiences anymore of seeing that we have an effect on the face of the other, on the body of the other, and so on. 
And that's why spontaneously, as soon as someone feels lonely, he usually will start to feel that his life is without a purpose or meaning. And then in a second step, something extremely important happens. When someone feels lonely, feels uh, that his life is without uh, a meaning or purpose, he will typically be confronted with very specific affective phenomena. And more in particular, he will feel anxious, frustrated, aggressive, without knowing what he feels anxious, frustrated, and aggressive for. And that's an extremely aversive mental state. If we feel anxious and we don't know what we feel anxious for, we have the feeling that we are completely out of control. So, and, and that's the state where a human being becomes extremely vulnerable for propaganda. And that's the, that's when, when, and when someone is in this state and uh, a narrative is distributed to, through the mass media, providing an object of anxiety, like a virus or the Jews or the, or the, the, the aristocracy or the witches or the, doesn't matter what, uh, when a narrative is distributed, which provides an object of anxiety, all this free-floating anxiety might suddenly connect to this object of anxiety. And people might be willing to participate in a strategy to deal with that object of anxiety, even if the strategy is utterly absurd. And I mean, it's, what's, what's very interesting about that is, uh, I mean, COVID is a, is a, is a, is a real threat. It's a real virus. Uh, and, and, it, and, it, and it killed many, many people, and it killed, and in particular, posed a re major threat to older people. So it's, it's not that this is, uh, uh, that the, the, the threat, it has to be fictional, right? In COVID, the threat no, wasn't. No, 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 no. Which, no. What, you're, what you're saying, and I think is very important, is that the, the threat is met with a population that doesn't, it is psychologically primed to handle it poorly. Because of this anxiety, this disconnection, this loneliness. No, exactly. Of course, there, there was a virus, and and uh, and um, um, uh, uh, there was a certain danger associated to the virus. But the problem is, when as soon as this process of mass formation starts, and as soon as all this anxiety, all this free-floating anxiety, is connected to the object of anxiety, the field of attention becomes extremely narrow. And it is as if people see only one danger anymore, and it is this virus. And for instance, all the adverse effects of the corona mandates, the corona measures, the vaccines, and so on, it is as if they don't exist just because all this anxiety is associated to this one object of anxiety. And, and that's, that's, that's the real problem with mass formation, that, 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 that it focuses the attention so much on one uh, 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 object of anxiety that all the rest disappears into the background. And Matthias, I have to say that that uh, was striking to me through the entire pandemic, because my first reaction to hearing about the idea of a lockdown was, uh, I mean, was, to, was to the damage it was going to do to the lives of the poor. It was obviously going to harm the very poorest people in the world. And you had, uh, it wasn't like people weren't saying this, like the UN World Food Program in April of 2020 had a, an estimate that 130 million people would would face starvation. Yeah. They, they call it dire food insecurity. I often mention exactly this example. It was in the beginning of the first lockdown that the UN and... Uh, 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 World uh, Bank says 100 million people uh, are going to be poor, uh, uh, $2 a day less or, or less of income. And yet those were... I mean, like in normal... Normally, I would have thought that that would... Be, cause alarm in the world like you know 130 million people starving i mean that is catastrophic that's you know that, that that's that's the kind of famine that happens you know it, it 
once a century. Yeah, exactly. And so that's 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 typically the effect of of of, of such a mass phenomenon. It 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 everyone is really literally hypnotized by uh, this one object of anxiety. All the attention is attached to it, and to this extent that people just are not aware anymore of, of the rest of reality. And and um, and then in a second step, something even more dangerous happens uh, because many people at the same time participate in a strategy to deal with that object of anxiety. They feel connected again. So they have the feeling that they escaped their loneliness. Loneliness, which is always always the most aversive state for a human being. And they feel that they are fighting this collective heroic battle with, with, with the object of anxiety. Well, can, so can I, can I say as, as, a, as a, uh, someone who is the, the victim of this, right? So I, I'm, I'm in public saying all of these other harms, these collateral harms are going to come of this strategy that we're following. And my focus is on the children, on the poor, on, on working class people, that are their lives are being devastated by these policies, not not even not so much as by the virus, but the policies. And suddenly, I'm the I am fo the focus of attack by the by the by the press, by my colleagues. Uh, I I'm the I'm the villain. I'm sure you face this too, Matthias. In your in your in your you yes, yes. Uh, so and and so it, it was it was striking. It's like as if we're the scapegoat. If yep. if I if it only can get rid of me and and you and a few other uh, crazy people, then then the then we can deal with the the real problem, which is COVID. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's what happens. That's what happens because uh, uh, mass formation seems to liberate people, seems to free people from all their problems. They felt they felt lonely. They felt that their life was without purpose. They felt anxious, frustrated, aggressive, and now suddenly there is this narrative. Which gives, which connects them again to each other, which uh, gives them a new purpose in life, and which allows them to control their anxiety and to take their frustration and, aggress and aggression out on all the scapegoats, on all those who do not want to go along with the narrative. That's what happens. And the strange thing is that history has shown that if the masses go to the last stage of the mass formation and start to destroy each and everyone who doesn't go along with them, well, in that case. As soon as everyone is destroyed, that, hap that happened so clearly in the Soviet Union, for instance, they, they find a new enemy within the masses. So they create a new enemy, a new scapegoat, scapegoat time and time again until almost everyone is killed. And um, yes, and that, and, you know, and of course you could say like, like that is, there are other problems as well, like mass formation seems to free people from their loneliness. It seems to reconnect them, but it doesn't. That's a strange thing because a mass is a, is a group, is a kind of group formation which does not happen because people connect to each other from individual to individual, from human being to human being. No, a mass is a group that emerges because each individual separately connects to a collective ideal, meaning that the famous solidarity in the masses is, and the, is never a solidarity between individuals. It's always a solidarity from an individual to a collective. And the longer a mass formation exists, the more every individual demands of every other individual that it sacrifices everything for the sake of the collective. And that's why in the corona crisis, everyone was talking about solidarity, 
But at the same time, people accepted that if someone got an accident on the street, they were no longer allowed to help him. And when their parents were dying in a, in a, in a hospital somewhere, that they were not allowed to be with them. So solidarity with individuals is forbidden in a mass. Only the solidarity with the collective. Right. The, the individual, the other, the, 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 my fellow human beings, my children, my wife, my, my friends, they're all biohazards. Yep. And I should only think of them as biohazards, entirely dehumanizing. Um, uh, the, and and, and uh, this, I want to, I want to like focus a little bit more, uh, just a couple more minutes on the scapegoating thing because I think it's really important. There's a, there's a, um, a, a literary theorist, uh, a very famous one, Rene Girard, who was, who actually oh. used to teach at Stanford, a, a, yeah. uh, and he, um, he had this theory of of mimicry. Yeah. The idea was that that we humans were built. We look at each other for uh, our objects of desire, mm. and we latch on to the things that other people like. Here, what we latched on to is uh, a desire for safety, a mm. safety of from from COVID, safety from you know. Essentially, we want uh, we we what we want was uh, no no more threat to our life from this virus. Um, we so and this in 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 the context of this mimicry, we we latch onto a, a set of things that not everybody can have. There's competition for the set of things that, that for for this limited set of things. This is Rene Girard's story, um, and in that competition, because everybody cannot have this this thing that we've copied each other's desire to have, uh, we it creates conflict, mm -hmm. it, and it, 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 there's there's social conflict because. Oh look, the the, uh, the 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 safety that I want is being threatened by the person who's walking down the street unmasked, right? It's being threatened by the man on on uh, on the podcast or the TV saying, you know, we should care about uh, the poor who are suffering because of the lockdowns. Um, it's being threatened, um, and so the the creation of a scapegoat, then, and the destruction of that scapegoat relieves the psychological tension created by the fact that the desires that we have in this alienated state cannot be fulfilled. No. This, the, it's, it's a necessary part of the process that oh, the scapegoat must be destroyed. Yeah, and, no. and what you said is exactly right. The next, once that scapegoat's gone, it, the desire still can't be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. There's going to have to be another one and another yes. one. There are many reasons why uh, uh, in, 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 in mass phenomena, you always need a scapegoat, and and there are many reasons because you you, you need it to take out your uh, 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 frustration and aggression on, and, and you need it for for many reasons, and that's why that's why indeed, as you said, history has shown it very clearly. Uh, once a mass formation starts, it always needs new scapegoats. Uh, when uh, George Orwell also knew that very well, he knew that very well. Uh, yeah, uh, 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 that's exactly what he mentions uh, in 1984. Uh, you know, there always needs to be an enemy, always. Uh, yeah. Now you had a you had a, a very interesting point in your book about measurability, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and and it seems like a, it seems like a detour, but it's actually really central, I think, to your theme and and to the and to why, why your story makes so much sense. Like think back to the the COVID crisis, and uh, especially think back to 2020, 2021, where, where we were we were all looking in the newspapers and elsewhere at these curves measuring how many cases there were yeah. is there an uptick have we reached the top are we do and and we um uh we attached uh, uh, a a sort of narrative to us that 
if the curve is moving, it's because of something we together did. If it's going up, it's because there's some bad guys that are that are that are mm-hmm. not listening to to the the, the measures. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we if when it's going down, it's because of th- things we did. All of our attention was focused on that measurable thing, while vast numbers of people were suffering from the from the lockdowns, from the from the from many many other health conditions that afflict humans, psychological harm uh, at, at scale. And we didn't measure those. Those are not put in front of the public. And so they, were, they meant nothing. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I think that one of the big problems of our culture is an, exa- an exaggerated belief in the objectivity of numbers. We, we, we are under the illusion that numbers represent facts, but they don't. They represent one uh, dimension of facts and one interpretation of facts. So at both levels, we, we, we find substantial problems at the level of the measurement itself and at the level of the interpretation of the measurement. And as you said, when we could see these graphs and curves showing how the number of uh, uh, victims claimed by the virus uh, increased and then decreased a little bit, increased again, then we were under the illusion that this was an objective representation of reality, but there is no objective measurement possible of, of the number of people who are dying. People die from many causes, uh, and, 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 and it, it takes a philosophical discussion to determine whether or not someone uh, died of COVID. And of course, there are meaningful and less meaningful ways of counting uh, the number of victims claimed by the virus. And I believe that we counted them in a much too enthusiastic way. That even the CDC admitted it that from, I think, April 2022 onwards, uh, somewhere around 40% of the people who were uh, registered as uh, COVID casualties actually were not, uh, were not, or, or that was not caused by the virus. So, but, but, but we, so the counting itself is a problem because people always die of, for many reasons, dying of something, dying is always an intrinsically multidimensional phenomenon. And, Measuring something or counting something is always a unit, is, is always comparing something with a unidimensional scale of the real numbers multiplied by a measurement scale. And that's why measurement for most phenomena uh, is, is not really objective. So that's the first problem. And then the second one is, of course, how do you imper- interpret the numbers? If you see how uh, the excess debt uh, 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 increases, well, how you will you interpret it? If you see how how uh, the number of COVID patients uh, dying increases, how will you interpret it? Does it is, this, is this an indication of the intrinsic mortality of the virus or does it have to do with a medical treatment that is not optimal? You don't know. Huh? And, the, and you know, what's interesting is the, uh, to me is that in that sense is that uh, it fed into this science as ideology kind of paradigm that you, you, you mentioned, Bertais, that if I, if I can measure it, therefore it's real, well, that that's like no, no one says in science. No one in science says that. I mean, we measure things in science because we want to test theories, we want to test ideas, we want to we want to find the real. But no one in science says that if I can't measure it, therefore it's not real. Maybe mm-hmm. I'll be able to measure it in the future, right? That's the ambition of science for something. Maybe, but we also have this humility that there may be things that we are not thinking of, that we are not measuring. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, in in uh, in the context of the COVID crisis. If we couldn't measure, it's not just that we couldn't. It's it's not just that we only focused on we focused on things on the only the things that we that 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 uh, were measurable because there were many measurable things that we just ignored. 
it, it, you know, and how many people are starving? How many people have uh, have severe psychological harm? How many people, you know, that, th those kinds? How many people are dying of cancer? We just ignored those those measurable things. But we we so it's not even the unmeasurable. It's just we are only going to focus on COVID and nothing else. Yes. Um, and we're going to measure on one thing. It's a very yes. strange kind of hypo, uh, hypnosis. It is, and that's that's the point. It's it, we are we are always under the illusion that measurement uh, uh, is an objective act, but it is a very subjective act. And as soon as there are strong subjective forces, such as mass formation, who emerge in a society, the measurement is just following these phenomena. The 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 the, the, the numbers will be constructed and interpreted, starting from these strong subjective affective social forces and. That's why the numbers will just usually the numbers presented in the media, for instance, they will just be selected and constructed in such a way that they confirm this narrative that seizes control of of, uh, of the masses. That that's that's the tremendous uh, psychological problem you're facing in such in such uh, situations. Okay, so I want to turn from now. Uh, I think this uh, we now have the background for for the psychological basis, the the root that you that you've identified for uh, much of the pathology that happened during the COVID crisis. Um, but I want to I want to turn now to the role of leaders and the people in in the in 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 what transpired during COVID. Right. So uh, on on the one hand, you have this this population. Most most of the population atomized uh essentially focused on on a, a narrow set of outcomes very anxious with this idea that if we if we just follow the science this ideological version of science uh, i can be free of this danger the scapegoating the and the and this this phenomenon as you've described it is is you call it a mass phenomenon what, what that means is that it happened to regular people lots and lots of most of most of us let's just say yes and the highly, um, and the highly educated, or even more sensitive to it, that's that's very typical. That, that, that Gustave Le Bon described that already in the nineteenth century. He said, "The higher the level of education, the more vulnerable for mass formation." No? Yeah, that's which is why universities were such dangerous places yeah. to be if you were if you were a yes. rebel. Um, yes. Exactly. Uh, okay, so but then but then what is the role of leaders in this? Right, because there are a lot of people looking at this. In retrospect, and they're saying, "Well, you know, the, our leaders tricked us." I mean, I have to say, I've had this thought myself, right? I, in fact, I wrote a piece uh, with Martin Kuldorf in uh, 2021, I think, saying that Fauci fooled America, mm. right? That that the, the Tony Fauci, uh, and I think there's a lot to to criticize in Tony Fauci, uh, and, and I and I do think that he uh, misread the scientific evidence very very much so. When, it, when he had a responsibility not to do so, he told the public many things that were not true, sometimes knowing that they were not true, behaved very, very irresponsibly for a scientific leader. Um, but is it right to say it's that he's he just fooled the public, or is there more to it than that? I mean, there's is because the story you're telling is not just one or two leaders that 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 uh, take over. It's it's a population prime to be taken over by these kinds of phenomena. Yes, of course, it's a, it's a. It's literally a complex dynamical phenomena, phenomenon uh, of which uh, both the leaders and the population are part of. And, and we, we, the, 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 it's very interesting to, to consider this phenomenon from a, a broader historical perspective. So mass formation and crowds and mass formation, 
have always existed. Uh, like we have had the witch hunts and the crusades and stuff. That these were classical examples of mass formation. But um, uh, throughout the last few centuries, the, the masses became stronger and stronger and stronger. And, and that that was the reason why uh, uh, in, the, in the beginning of the twentieth century, we uh, could, uh, a new kind of state emerged, the so-called totalitarian state, which is completely different from a classical dictatorship uh, because it is based on mass formation. A, totally, uh, a classical dictatorship is not based on mass formation. People are just psychologically scared of a small group of people and they just do what they want because they are scared of them. That's in a nutshell and a little bit uh, simplistic what a classical dictatorship is. But in a totalitarian state, something completely different happens. There is first a phenomenon of mass formation in which the population becomes fanatically convinced of a certain narrative, uh, 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 an ideologically driven narrative. And then the masses, uh, together with some leaders, can seize control of society and, and install a new kind of state which has a huge secret police, namely this part of the population, which believes so fanatically uh, in the narrative that they are prepared to report everyone to the state who doesn't follow it. So that's a totalitarian state. And the big question, of course, is, why did this totalitarian state emerge for the first time in the 20th century and not before? And then the answer is that before the 20th century, the masses, the phenomenon of mass formation was not strong enough and didn't last long enough to, uh, to, uh, to, uh, to be used as the basis of a new of a state system. And then that's the very interesting, if, if you look how the masses become mass formation, uh, lasted longer and longer, then you can clearly see that both the elite played a role and the population itself. They both played a role. Uh, like, starting from the French Revolution onwards, for instance, uh, there were more and more people uh, at the level of the elite who became convinced that uh, the only way to uh, uh, keep control of society was through constant psychological manipulation. We, we often forget that, but... Uh, Immediately, immediately after the French Revolution, um, uh, we, 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 the first modern institute of propaganda emerged. And, and starting from then, propaganda became ever more important. And, and what we see now is that like most global institutions, like the, the UN, for instance, I wrote a, an essay on that, on that on my substack, become convinced that it is their holy duty to mislead the population a little bit, or at least to manufacture consent, uh, uh, ideological consent. And for instance, during the corona crisis, they hired 110,000 so-called digital first responders to constantly uh, put people who had a different opinion in a bad daylight. So, and I'm sure that most people at the level of the UN who actually, actually recruited all these digital first responders are convinced that they of their own good intentions. They were convinced that it was their duty to, to make sure that the population went along, bought into this narrative. Um, that, that I, I saw this too. I mean, I think I, it was, and it's striking because let, let's just take someone working in a pharmaceutical company on, on, a, on a vaccine, mm -hmm. right? I, I have friends that do this actually, who, who work in, for, for pharmaceutical companies. They don't think that they're doing bad. In fact, quite the opposite. They think they're doing good, and they, they may be doing good, right? That's not that's not. Uh, but but and for the, for them, um, the crisis uh, w was something that that they that they're that they're diving into using their expertise to help. I think that's that's true for a lot of the. Basically, I, I don't. 
it's hard to find too many people that are like like so cynical that's like i'm going to take it that i'm going to lie just for my own advantage um it, it's that they're that, that what they're they're it is it's in fact even more dangerous they're convinced that they're doing the right thing even when they're cutting ethical corners even when they're uh, putting forward things that that they haven't really tested t- tested well, even when they are telling the public, you know, noble so, so-called noble lies, um, and and not and ignoring basic principles like you know benefit harm analyses or 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 let's look at a broader set of outcomes than just one. Um, even when they're doing those things, they think they're doing good. A lot of the elite, a lot of the leaders, um, that what 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 happened is this very complicated thing where. Uh, that the, the, there was this crisis, and and there were people that took advantage of the crisis, you know, mm. for for money and for or whatnot. But most of them thought that they were doing good in the process of doing that, and 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 the public, much of the public was happy to let that happen because they thought it would address the crisis. Exactly, ideological blindness is the major driving factor in emerging totalitarianism, much more than money and power. That's uh, Hannah Arendt, I think, uh, made a very accurate analysis there. She said it's not the lust for money and power in the first place. It's in the first place an ideological drive, a blind ideological drive. Which, which That's the problem with these many of these experts, not all of them. We, we should differentiate between them. But the, the problem is that they are so convinced that their own ideology is the only solution to the problems of the world that they start to believe that it is justified and even a duty to manipulate the population, to make it accept these ideological uh, changes they want to impose to society. That's the real problem and for most people. And then we have to differentiate like most totalitarian leaders, uh, 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 most leaders of the masses, uh, blindly believe their ideology, but that doesn't always mean that they believe the narratives they use to maintain to, to, to manipulate the population in such a way that they accept this ideological reshaping of society they see as their end, as their end goal. So there, there is a difference. Totalitarian leaders and the leaders of the masses and people who make propaganda usually are blindly convinced of their ideology but often they do not really believe the narratives they use to manipulate the population. So that's that's the next uh, next. That, next is, that is really interesting distinction, right? So it it's, it's as if they're lying and not lying at the same time. Yes, exactly. Right? They, they they think they they so a Tony Fauci can very honestly think he's doing good. Yeah. His, his he is the science. If you question him, you're questioning science itself. I mean, such an obviously manifestly ridiculous thing to say or think. And yet he really honestly believes that, that, that's yeah. it, that is, his ideology is the science. He has bought into the entire program that, that we just, we outlined over, over the last 45 minutes. Um, and, but because he's bought into it, because he, and he's the high pope of the science, he can, in his own mind, say things that he knows to be untrue because he thinks it will lead the public to do things that he thinks is wise. Exactly. If, if you read... The, the, the books of the founding fathers of modern public relations and propaganda, such as, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of uh, Edward Bernays. Um, 
Yes, he's one of the founding fathers of modern propaganda. That's exactly what he said. I have to say, propaganda is not among the set of things I've studied in my life. <laughs> yes, I started to, to be interested in it, in it since I uh, studied the psychology of uh, totalitarianism because because it's 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 one necessary ingredient of totalitarianism. So you need two things for a totalitarian state to emerge. On the one hand, you need an elite who uh, can use mass media to uh, constantly uh, uh, ha have an impact, psychological impact, or manipulate the, the, the population. And you need a population which feels lonely and so on. So the, you need two things. You need, you need uh, a specific elite and a specific psychological state in a population. Jacques Ellul has described this in a wonderful way, how um, from the 20th century onwards, so many people feel lonely uh, that a new kind of mass emerged, like ancient masses differed from the modern masses because the modern masses are not physically meeting. They are not physical masses. They are lonely masses. In the modern masses, all the individuals that constitute the mass are sitting isolated in their living room, watching television or consulting the internet. So they are all in the grip of the same narrative, the same ideology, without ever meeting in person. And this kind of lonely mass uh, is much, much, can last much, much longer and can be controlled much, much better than the physical mass, uh, masses of, uh, of, uh, of yesteryear. So that's the point. And that, that, that's, that's why, uh, that's why uh, uh, these masses, lonely masses, can be used as a psychological basis of, uh, of totalitarian states. And I am really, I really believe that we are um, really at risk of being confronted with a new kind of totalitarianism now, uh, technocratic totalitarianism, uh, which in which uh, the underlying ideology might be a transhumanist technocratic ideology. Um, that's the logical consequence of a radical mechanistic human man in the world. If you look at the human being and at the universe as a, a machine, a mechanistic entity, then it's only logical that you want a technical expert to be in control of the machine. Why would you ask a democratically elected politician without rational knowledge to uh, determine how the machine should function and then so on and so on? No, you need an expert. <laughs> so you, you, you could maybe at some point just let the machine itself take over. <laughs> yes, some some believe that would be the solution to everything. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is quite it's quite striking, and I think you're right. There's 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 pointers in that direction. But let me let me before we you know allow ourselves to be despondent. Uh, we, people did wake up. We're no longer in 2020, and it doesn't feel as if the Corona crisis is any longer the. Uh, the, the causing the kind of mass formation that you describe in your book. It's and so something something happened between 2020 and 2024 when when we're discussing this that caused so many people, maybe the most of the population, to say enough, to wake up. Yeah. Yes. And uh, so that's a cause for hope, isn't it? Like what what led that led to that uh, that pe people waking up from the from from the situation that they were in. Uh, that usually happens, like narratives uh, lead to a mass formation, uh, and very often uh, uh, these narratives disappear in the background again. Uh, and but then, and that that we could see that very clearly. Of course, uh, as soon as a, one mass formation uh, uh, loses its power a little bit, um, 
people start to wake up. And But the problem is that they feel even more lonely than before. That's the problem. So, the, of course, because, because in, uh, during the mass formation, all the solidarity between the people was sucked away and injected in the bond of, the, of individuals with the collective. So that, that's, that's the problematic effect of mass formation, that people stop feeling solidarity for each other and they, they feel only solidarity with a collective ideal. So and if, if, as soon as the, the mass formation stops... Um, people feel even more lonely than before. So, and, and we could see that very clearly. Like once back in 2022, I think, students were allowed to come to university again. They just didn't show up anymore. And, and people, people uh, uh, could go to work again, but they didn't go to work again. So, and then people go, could go to the theater again, but they didn't. Just because... It, that, was, that was very striking. But, 20, but 2024... Then, can I add one thing to it, Jay? So, and then, then we could see something very, uh, uh, very interesting. Then, as soon as the Corona narrative lost its grip a little bit, the Ukraine narrative, uh. in many respects, replaced it. And and then after the Ukraine narrative lost its power a little bit, we could see the how the the uh, 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 Israel-Palestine narrative kicked in, and that's so typical. When a certain limit, when a, when a certain critical uh, uh, number of people uh, starts to feel lonely, uh, it is the one mass phenomenon after the other takes place. And what we see now, I think, I think only the corona crisis led to a fully-fledged mass formation. And the, because for me, the characteristics of a fully-fledged mass formation are that two new groups emerge, one group who buys into the narrative and the group who doesn't and the dividing line between these three groups two groups runs through every pre-existing group through every company every a group of friends every family every couple you Political see how everything is split into uh, 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 by this new uh, group formation and that that's the characteristic of a fully fledged mass formation it is so powerful energetically that it reorganizes the entire society, even all political parties and everything is split in two. And uh, after the Corona crisis, I don't think the Ukraine crisis uh, or the Middle East crisis now have have this tremendous power. They, no, they, they those felt like more standard political fights. Uh, I mean, obviously they're catastrophic wars, but like the in terms yeah. of the ideology of the of, of how it divided, it was it, it, along lines one could have predicted. Whereas it's very perceptive. I hadn't thought of it that way, Matthias. The, the, the corona crisis, I, and in fact, I'd wondered at this, that the, the corona crisis divided people, but also combined groups of people that would never otherwise have spoken with each other. Yeah, exactly. Yes. And uh, and yeah. for me, that's been one of the few blessings of the crisis is I've gotten to yeah. meet so many interesting people who think so differently than me, and yet we came together. So, but so And so what is it that led some people to say, look, this is, doesn't make sense, and others... Others to say it, uh, it, it, it uh, you know, this, you know, to, to, to fall into the to the ideology of the of the uh, Corona crisis. Really, nobody knows. Throughout the last two centuries, everyone who has studied the phenomenon of mass formation has asked this question: Why do some people fall prey to it, and others don't? And you know, um, probably at the level of human psychology. You can see that we have a few ways, at least two, but more actually, 
to find a certain stability as a human being. And one of the ways is to go along with the group, to base to your individual identity and group identity. And a second way to find stability and a certain strength in life is to speak in a sincere way. And my next book is all about that, the psychology of, of truth and the psychology of speech. It's, 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 and, like, and some people, when they have to decide, always choose the easy way and they just uh, identify with the ideal images that are circulating in the group and with the narratives that are circulate, circulating in the group. And other people uh, uh, have the feeling, no, there is something wrong with this narrative and I can't go along with it and I prefer to speak out. And that also gives a certain stability, a different kind of power and stability. But for one reason or another, intuitively or instinctively, some people always take the, 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 the way of, of, a, of, a, of group identity and others, um, yeah, choose the other way and, and try to, 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 to articulate uh, the words that seem sincere and honest to them. Um, so that's the only thing I could come up with. But, but, you know, this question has been asked time and time again. Time. It's puzzled me through the entire pandemic, Matthias. Um, and it's yeah. been heartening to see more and more people come to the view that I've, I've been arguing since basically the beginning. Um, and, and it's been, it's, it's, it's one of these things where like, it's actually led to this very strange phenomenon where people who saw it early, some of them are upset that there are new people coming on board and trying to hold them responsible for things that they said at the beginning. Um, I mean, that kind of purity test, I just, it, I find it repulsive. I just don't like those things. I mean, like, I, oh. I like to, to like have connections with people, uh, find ways to connect and find ways to, 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 to learn from people, even if I disagreed with them earlier. Um, and, uh, and th 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 I mean, it just, I think it has no place. Um, but it, it, it's, it's, it's been a, one of the few sources of hopefulness and, but also puzzlement. How do you, how do you build a structure, uh, a society that is resistant to mass form? How do you get more of the people that would say, no, this narrative makes no sense? The art speech. That's the only answer. Uh, you, you know, a very interesting book. It was published during the Corona crisis, actually, by David Graeber. You might know the guy. He's the, the author of... Uh, Bush 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 yes. Yeah. yes. Uh, he, uh, he published a book together with David Wengrow. Uh, and the title of the book was The Dawn of Everything. And in the beginning, in the beginning chapters of this book, he, he uh, describes how uh, certain observations of, uh, of, of, uh, of the Catholic priests who tried to Christianize uh, the Indian... Uh, tribes or the Native American tribes um, of Northeastern America. And he said that, uh, so they didn't succeed in Christianizing them. These guys couldn't be Christianized for one reason or another, but they made very interesting observations. And one of the most interesting was the following. Uh, these priests observed how the Indians could organize their tribal societies without any use of power or force. So nobody... Uh, could command someone else, unless in certain uh, uh, exceptional states such as war or something. Uh, but uh, in their modern, in their, in their, in their daily lives, uh, uh, there were no power relationships. And these, these, these uh, uh, priests just try to understand how these, these Indians could organize their tribal life in such a way, avoiding to use power. And they, they found the, I think, the uh, very, a relevant answer to the question, they said it is because they uh, cultivate the art of sincere speech, 
time and time again, hours and hours and hours, every week, they uh, had very open conversations with each other. And uh, if a crime happened, they solved it in this way. They didn't have to punish someone, usually. And so that's, that's one example uh, where you can see how the art of sincere speech, uh, I think, uh, is really the solution for the phenomenon of totalitarianism and mass formation. Now, I cannot go into detail now, but what you can see is that, first and for all, sincere speech inhibits mass formation. Because when people continue to speak out, when a mass starts to emerge, the mass formation usually will not go to the ultimate stage where they start to destroy each and everyone who doesn't go along with them. But there is a second something that is even much more important. Sincere speech is also, by definition, speech that connects people from soul to soul. And that's what I describe in my new book. Sincere speech and the phenomenon of truth is always resonating speech. It resonates. It makes people vibrate together on the same frequencies. And in this way, a real group emerges. When people cultivate the art of sincere speech, they start to connect from individual to individual. And that's how a real group emerges. And as soon as the group energetically becomes stronger than the masses, which are based on a fundamentally different principle where there is no free speech allowed, where everyone uh, identifies with the same collective ideal, as soon as the group of people who are connected through sincere speech become energetically stronger than the masses, organized by propaganda, well, as soon as this happens, the era of totalitarianism is over. Yeah, that's really, really interesting. Because what you're, what you're saying is it's speech that addresses the loneliness, that addresses the disconnection. Wow. Um, there's, well, uh, I'm really looking forward to, to reading your new book. Uh, when it, uh, and we'll we'll have you know we should definitely have another conversation when it when uh, when 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 that when, I'm, when when that happens. Um, but uh, just but I want to end this our conversation today with how you ended the book, uh, the, the 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 psychology of totalitarianism, which, which is a, which is essentially a proposal to reject the mechanistic worldview as a way of addressing at least the mass formation that created by this ideology of science. Yeah. Yes. I um, do. What, what did you have? I mean, it was it was it was it was interesting to read, Matthias, because it. it um, I'm I'm a I'm a Christian. I mean, I, I I believe in God. I believe, and I think that that's part of my. Um, it, it's part of my. It's a deep part of my thinking. I'm a scientist also, uh, and I and I. Uh, but and I understand that that some people think there's tension, but I personally don't see any tension. Uh, it, no. you know, I, I, I act as a scientist, but and so, so to me, that was a nat- it, that 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 chapter resonated. But to many people reading it, they'll say, "Well, are you are you proposing that uh, to reintroduce religion into into like you know, let's have more Blaise Pascal's, let's have more Newtons who were religious people in at science." Least for, at least, for the, what I see is that uh, many of the seminal scientists, uh, in the end, started to feel uh, the presence of a of a of an intelligent being again, of, a, of, of something they, they refer to with the word God. Like Max, Max Planck is one of the most splendid examples, uh, but there are ma- so many others. And I had the same experience. Like in, when I was 18 years old, I come from a, a religious family, but when I was 18 years old, I really was a convinced atheist. I couldn't understand how, how an intelligent uh, human being could believe that there was such a thing as God. And then uh, slowly, uh, and 
my first steps on this road were that I started to realize slowly that um, uh, our rational understanding is limited. It took me until I was 35 years old before I suddenly really understood that what science showed us is exactly this, that the essence of life is not rational. Before that, I made many little steps. Like when I learned about the modern physics, I started to understand, oh, we, we try to reduce everything to, the, to these elementary particles, but we don't have a clue what these elementary particles are. And they can be at several places at the same time, and so on and so on. So these elementary particles to which we try to reduce everything are, are, are pure mystery. And then, then it, it took me until... I was 35 years old before I suddenly understood from, oh, Jesus, it's, 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 it's not rational. The, the world around us is not rational. It is not rational. Essentially, we can use our brain, and I think we, I hope we do so. Uh, we can, we can, I, I'm a very rational person, and I think I will continue to be a very rational person, but I got rid of the illusion that uh, my rational understanding is the real understanding, and that my rational understanding would be capable of grasping the essence of life. That's just not true. The essence of life transcends rationality. And as soon as I started to understand that, slowly, <laughs> I started to look at nature around me. And I looked at the plant. I realized that the plant was a mystery and that for my rational understanding, it would always remain a mystery. And I started to feel so much better the presence of a certain mind that transcends my own rational mind and that speaks to me through everything around me. And, um, you, you know, even when I was 22 or 23, I started to become a little bit aware that there was such a thing as a God again. But it took me longer because I, I, I really, um, because before I really started to feel it in, in a much more concrete uh, way. And, um, and uh, for me, like reading what Max Planck wrote about this, I mentioned, I think, uh, certain quotes of Max Planck in the last chapter of my book, I think, they were yeah. so wonderful and so courageous for such an idea to articulate such ideas in the academic world, you have to be a really courageous person. And for me, he deserved the Nobel Prize even more for what he said about, about uh, uh, religion and God than for his discoveries, uh, which are fascinating and, and, and wonderful discoveries, scientific discoveries. But even uh, ultimately understanding that uh, uh, the essence of matter, of elementary particles, transcends rationality, for me, is even more important. It's the, it's the last and final step your rationality can make. Um, uh, such beautiful, Matthias. Thank you for sharing that story. I, I, I loved, I loved uh, that story. We, and, uh, you know, I think um, it's one of these things where, like, I, I, uh, it's not one of these things you would, would uh, require anybody to have, but it's something where, I mean, I, I actually have a very similar story I could tell, uh, but but we're running out of time now, um, and I think it's, it's uh, like incredibly meaningful. But I wonder whether it is a guard against mass formation because we we have, as you said, we have had things that look like mass formation using religious ideas as a as a as a, as the basis of it. 
Just as science is a beautiful thing, but science becomes an ideology that then becomes the the basis for the psychological basis for how mass formation worked. Um, you could also imagine a religious society, a Christian society. You don't have to imagine. You can look in history and see uh, mass formation coming around where where Christianity becomes the ideology rather than this freeing thing, this this liberating thing that you just described, the experience that you had, uh, which actually I should say I share entirely. Um, it, it's it's the 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 idea of rejecting the materialist worldview doesn't automatically protect us against mass formation. You uh, need something more. What 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 is uh, quintessential? Is that you are you never become so convinced of your own ideology that uh, you you think you don't have any reason anymore to listen to the to the to the to the opinion of someone else? That's the most important thing. Like being always a little bit uncertain. Never be so sure of what you of your own ideas and your own rational understanding that you find no space anymore where you can allow someone else to enter your mind and to exchange ideas with you. That's the most important thing, I think. And of course, religious uh, ideologies or religious uh, ideas can also lead to mass formation. They will be different. They will also be cruel, but they will be different. Uh, but uh, 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 also there we see the same, of course. What matters is that you be do not become so fanatically convinced of your own doctrine, of your own ideology, that you believe uh, uh, that uh, uh, someone who doesn't uh, follow that ideology is not a human being anymore. That's 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 just what ultimately matters. I think uh, it's all, and and that's the disaster of of the scientific discourse. It led so many people to the fanatic belief that there is only one uh, 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 objective and true view of man in the world, and that it is the mechanist the mechanist view of man in the world. That's the that's one of the major problems, I think. Matthias, uh, I've kept you longer than I promised I'd keep you, but it's been an absolutely fascinating conversation, and I, we will definitely have you on next time when you're when uh, when uh, I've had a chance to read your new book, uh, which I'm very much looking forward to. We'll, I think uh, you might be on to something. How to, to solve the mass formation problem? We need ways to be open to each other, to yeah. the speech of each other. Um, uh, so uh, thank you, Matthias. Then this is uh, this has been Professor Jay Bhattacharya talking with Matthias Desmet for the Illusion of Consensus podcast. Thank you for listening. Until next time. Thank you, Jay. Thank you for having me on. Hi, everyone. A quick word from our first and exciting new sponsor, Alchemy Elements. We've been shopping around trying to find the best sponsors that align with our mission and our values and what we stand for. And we've come across Alchemy Elements, which I'm very excited to bring to you guys which is a synergistic herbal supplement. It's a mix of several adaptogenic plant compounds. For those of you who don't know, adaptogens, you might have heard on Andrew Huberman's podcast, are uh, plant medicines that help the body adapt to stress, essentially. And so there's a number of adaptogens in here, including cordyceps mushrooms, reishi mushrooms, astrologus, shiljot, polygala, lion's mane mushrooms, and other compounds as well. And you just take a tablespoon of this, you put it in your morning coffee or your smoothie or a protein shake, and you're good to go. Um, I've been doing this for about a week. And as it suggests, um, some of the short-term effects of increased focus, increased concentration, more energy, I've already been feeling some of that. Uh, look forward to taking it more in the long term and reporting back as we do more of these ads. Uh, 
we've been very careful and selective in what to what what to sponsor on our program and this is something that i can totally get behind and as long as you keep hearing ads about this particular product alchemy elements you can be assured that this is something that i stand behind and can personally vouch for and recommend individuals try um so for a limited time right now um people who are watching or listening to this podcast they can get a 10% discount on their first order or they can get a 30% discount for all subscription orders if you um subscribe for a certain amount of deliveries per month and if you um order a subscription package then you can get the premium gold kit as well which includes this um really nice gold bottle and a gold spoon to store your alchemy elements um just use the code word illusion if you're on Spotify or Apple or Substack um we'll drop a link below or you can manually uh type in alchemyelements.com and you can add um your uh, products to the cart and you can put in the code illusion and you can get the 10% off discount for the first order or 30% off for the subscription order and you can get your gold kit uh, thank you so much to alchemy elements um please check them out and uh, i hope you enjoy their products